Good morning. Go ahead and take a seat. All right, everyone feeling peppy? We'll get there. Okay, that's okay. All right, my name's Thomas. I'm one of your pastors here at Parkview, and uh, it's going to be my joy to open up Acts 21. Acts 21. Uh, The passages actually aren't going to be on the screen this week. That'll be a little different. Uh, So uh, if you use a tablet, a device, whatever, that'll work. Uh, A Bible is good, too. A physical printed Bible is good, too. Uh, Many of you are aware, some of you are rejoicing. I know I spoke with one of you in the lobby that spring break has begun. Uh, That's great. It's the middle of the course of the semester for many college students and so forth. And that means you probably just finished some midterms, right? Okay. Well, aren't midterms great? No, they aren't. But they serve a great purpose. What they do is they allow us to have a moment of reflection. We get a a, a mid-course evaluation. We find out how we're doing. Am I actually learning anything? (laughs) Am I actually growing? Am I actually picking up what I'm supposed to be picking up? Uh, That way I can know, do I need to really pick up the pace here in this second half or do I need to uh, adjust a different way? Um, And now here we are. Acts 1.8 tells us that the whole purpose of the book of Acts uh, is that he tells us we will be God's witnesses, uh, witnesses to the resurrection, to the glory of Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Uh, and that's meant to affect us well, to be uh, invited to be transformed as we are witnesses to the glory of Jesus. And here we are, week 38 in the book of Acts. Week 38, we're something like nine or ten months in, nine months into the book of Acts. Here we are. Not exactly midterm, uh, but certainly in the middle. And we're at an important turning point in the book of Acts where uh, we're really going to narrow in on Paul and his trials and his eventual uh, journey all the way to Rome. And so I want to ask you what I'm asking all your community group leaders here in this month too. I want to ask, what fruit have you seen from your study, our study of the book of Acts? What have you seen? Is there anything you could point to, concrete changes that you've seen in your soul, uh, in your life, in your schedule, in whatever it happens to be, uh, that you could point to and say, you know, because of the book of Acts, uh, my life looks different. Uh, these 38 weeks, you've made a significant investment <laughs> uh, in the book of Acts. I have too. You know, this, this church has made a huge investment uh, in the book of Acts in you. What, what have you seen? I'm encouraged to hear what you'd say. I hope some of you come up and say, here's a few things that actually came to mind, or you share those with your group in this, in this next week. So, but I do want to give you just an opportunity to take that and, and reflect. Now, uh, as I said, we're sort of turning a corner here in the book of Acts down to Paul uh, and his trials and on his way to Rome. And here's how I want us to sort of experience today's passage. It's a big one, okay? So we're going to sort of run through it uh, with a question in mind. Paul here is being held up to us as sort of a model disciple. Um, We get to see how Paul confronts hostility, uh, disunity in the church, Um, being misunderstood and misrepresented. These are things that every one of us have to deal with. And so I want us to ask this question as we go through this passage. How does a whole disciple respond? How does a whole disciple respond? Um, What we have here is Paul, not a perfect man by any means, and he would be the first one to say that. We know that from from other places he's he's spoken. But he shows us a picture of a whole disciple. Well-rounded is what that means. Whole, not complete, but well-rounded, humble-hearted, eager to learn Jesus, to love Jesus, and to live for Jesus. So um, let me pray for us. We'll dive right in. Lord, yes, as we arrive at this point in the book of Acts, we want to have a realistic view of ourselves, seeing where we have learned, where we 
have more to learn where we maybe have fallen short. I'm sure all of us feel that way. Um, I pray that you would help us to have a realistic view of your world, how to live rightly, how to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus. Most of all, Lord, help us to have a real view of Jesus, your glorious Son, who makes any of that possible. And now open up your word to us, Lord. Um, Make it have its good effect. Soften our hearts so that your Spirit's impression can be made on us. We pray this all in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Now, if you remember where we left off, Paul was on his way to Jerusalem, and what we'll see today is that Paul has arrived in Jerusalem. Uh, So Acts 21, and I'll begin in verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear uh, that you have come. And so immediately, Paul comes to Jerusalem, and we know Paul had been promised by God that when he came to Jerusalem, in fact, wherever he went, but especially if he went to Jerusalem, he would encounter resistance, he would encounter confusion, and especially he would encounter suffering. And it didn't take long. It didn't take long. He gets here, um, and we see, we know that the the church that was established in Jerusalem uh, became large almost instantly. We remember the events of Pentecost in Acts 2, when God's Spirit came, and they spoke the uh, the truth about Jesus, and many thousands were brought to to faith in Christ there on the spot. And so the church in Jerusalem was was sizable, was large, what we'd think of as a really, really huge church. And most of the people in that church, uh, it was made up mostly of Jewish people who had come to see that Jesus was indeed the promised uh, Savior, which the Old Testament, which they would have just called the Bible, uh, the Old Testament had prophesied would come and save uh, uh, his people. But some rumors had popped up about Paul's ministry among that group. Uh, Remember back in Acts 15, the Gentiles, uh, that is non-Jewish people, not ethnically, racially Jewish, But those who had become Christians from a Gentile background were not required to keep the laws of Moses, Uh, meaning they did not, the men didn't need to be circumcised, you know, or to keep the dietary laws or to uh, visit the temple to offer sacrifices and so forth. Um, There were elements of the Old Testament law that, that circumscribed the Jewish people as Jewish people culturally and racially, food, circumcision, uh, purity laws, what they wore, their clothing, and things like that, that would, that would say, this is a Jewish person, racially, ethnically a Jewish person. Um, but those things did not apply now in the age of the Spirit and the age of Jesus to non-Jewish people who became Christians. Um, and that's because the way of Jesus, this new door that had opened up through Christ and through his death and resurrection, was an entirely new way of relating to God. It was like nothing uh, that had ever been seen before, not on the basis of race or culture. Uh, it used to be that becoming part of the nation of Israel was basically the entryway into God's salvation, so that to become saved meant to become a Jewish person. Um, but Jesus had opened this entirely new way, not through a certain nation, nationality, race, or culture, but through Jesus himself. There was not one holy nation on earth. There was not sort of one holy tribe, one, but rather there was one holy man. 
uh, who would be, uh, who, through whom salvation was available. But this rumor was spreading, okay? You needed the backstory. There it was. But this rumor is spreading, okay? <laughs> the rumor is spreading that Paul says, no, no, no. Actually, um, not only do the Gentiles not need to submit to those things that, that outlined the Jewish people as Jewish, but you know what? The Jewish people too. Why don't you throw that out? So they're saying, you can imagine, well, Paul, he just doesn't care about stuff anymore. He just does whatever he wants, right? He doesn't care about it. He doesn't care about the people of Israel, and we'll see that in a minute. He doesn't care about the law. He doesn't care about this temple. He just does whatever he wants. You can imagine some of the, maybe they're saying, you know, he's, he's had so much success with the Gentiles, uh, he's be, his head is inflated, and so he's just doing whatever he wants. We'll, we'll, well, let's correct him. This rumor was spreading, and, and it was sowing disunity in the church. And you see uh, what happens is Paul comes to Jerusalem, and he's not talking to sort of the people in the temple, the, the, the Jewish people who didn't believe in Jesus. He's talking to the church. And so Paul becomes concerned that this, this error, this rumor, is actually sowing disunity. So maybe the first, if, if the question we're asking is, how does a whole disciple respond? The, the first thing they confront is disunity in the church. So that's to make this more, a little more of a principle for us to learn from. How does, the whole, how does a whole disciple promote gospel unity in the church? That's what I want to ask us. How does, how does a whole disciple promote gospel unity? And we get an answer right away. <clears throat> Verse 23 says this. And this is what the elders uh, told Paul that he should do in response to this issue. They say, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself live in observance of the law. So this is their solution. They have sort of a creative solution. They say, in order to make a public display that, that all those rumors are not true, okay, go on the record. Go to the temple and do a, a public act of, of uh, submission to the law of Moses. Uh, we know that Paul probably doesn't have to do this. That's why he, you know, they recommend it to him. Um, but he decides that he's going to go out of his way to do this to ensure that the church will be unified, that there will be no cause for division because of Paul and his presence in the church of Jerusalem. So the first thing that we can learn right away is that preventing disunity or promoting unity, to put it positively, requires us to lay down our rights. Paul did what he didn't have to do, that he had the freedom to say no to in order to serve those around him rather than himself. And we'll see in a moment, of course, Paul knew that going to Jerusalem was enormously dangerous for himself personally. And if going to Jerusalem in general was dangerous, going to the temple in Jerusalem was perhaps the most dangerous place of all. There's no more, no more dangerous place maybe in the whole world for Paul than the temple in Jerusalem. And yet he's so concerned to preserve church unity that this is actually the thing that begins the cascade of events that ends with his death. Paul basically, you know, I'm going to turn a phrase like a preacher does, but Paul basically dies for church unity. Or at least that's what kicks it off, this cascade of events. Maintaining the unity of the church is not for wimps. It is not for wimps. Protecting our unity in Christ is not for the faint of heart. It, costs Paul, it ends up costing Paul basically everything. And every single one of us who follow Jesus have a role to play. We have a role to play. And either one of us is, is helping promote the unity of the church or not. So this unity, like it costed Paul something, it will cost us something as well. 
Uh, but nothing is more precious to Jesus than his bride, and the unity of his people is of paramount importance to him. Um, whatever it costs us, he will make sure it's worth it. So I want to throw out some ideas. I want to throw out some concrete steps you might take. What would it look like for us to be people who promote unity in the way that Paul did here? <clears throat> well, one of the most important ways we can promote unity is with our mouths, with the way we speak. Uh, the way we speak to one another and speak about one another uh, is one of the most fundamental indicators of unity in a church. Um, Proverbs 10:11 says, The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Uh, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. We can protect unity by refusing to gossip about one another or to participate in gossip about one another. If there's something you wouldn't say to a person's face, it shouldn't be said behind their back. Uh, we can protect unity by speaking well. Uh, we can avoid gossip. When, when someone shares something disparaging in private to you about uh, someone else, one thing I'll often find myself replying is, oh my goodness, that sounds kind of serious. What did they say when you told them about it? What did they say when you raised that concern with them? If they haven't, then it's a check for them to say, ah, this is, I probably should have, or that's probably something I need to discuss with them. And it makes it clear that I'm not interested in participating in that kind of speech. Uh, on the flip side, you can encourage unity uh, by honoring your brothers and sisters in Christ, by speaking well of them. Um, I've told you guys about uh, what I like to call gospel gossip, which is the opposite of gossip. If gossip is something rude said about someone behind their back, uh, gospel gossip is where you say something nice about someone to their face. Okay, and one of my favorite things to do is actually when I hear something uh, that someone has done well, uh, to go spread that around. Okay, I like to go tell people about it. Tell people about the nice things that you guys have done, about how great you are. Okay, uh, imagine a church where people are routinely calling out publicly calling out with one another the honorable things that we see in one another's lives. How often does that happen to you in your week? My guess is just about never. That's, but doesn't that sound like exactly what we all know we need? It sounds like heaven on earth. And that is just what Jesus intended. So let's promote that kind of unity. We can also promote unity in our hearts by simply assuming the best of people. First uh, Corinthians 13 is known as the passage about love. It's often featured in, in weddings and things like that. It's a wonderful passage. Uh, the two most convicting parts of that passage, love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Sometimes I feel convicted when I realize I almost wanted someone to do the wrong thing. I almost hoped they were doing the wrong thing. Uh, they said this, and I wanted to believe that they meant that instead of the best possible thing they could have meant by it. But love and promoting unity means believing the best. You can also promote unity with your hands by serving. Uh, we're going to talk about it, uh, and I think you'll get some more information out on the counter, but uh, we're in need to, of, of helping sort of spruce up our facility in a few different ways, particularly with these chairs that you're sitting on. Uh, maybe over time you've noticed there are a few problems with some of these chairs. Uh, and pretty soon we're going to invite a bunch of guests into our place on Easter Sunday. Uh, so we could use your help with uh, getting these chairs in good order. They're put up and taken down all the time, so it's no wonder they get a little run down, uh, serving the purposes of the gospel in this room. Uh, but throughout the facility to get things first up. I'm guessing when you have guests over to your home, you kind of go around and go, I'd like to get a few things in order, make it look nice around here, okay? And that's what we're going to be doing on Easter Sunday. So on March 25th, 
Uh, that's a Saturday morning. It'd be a good thing. Bring the whole family. Come with your community group. Uh, come ready to get a little bit of work done, and, and we'll get this place looking nice as we invite guests on Easter Sunday. So we can promote unity in that way as well. So we've seen how a whole disciple might respond to a case of disunity by promoting unity in the church. So let's grow as whole disciples of Jesus, letting the gospel affect us at every level, um, and particularly by promoting gospel unity, using our freedom, laying it down to serve others uh, as God calls us. Let's move on uh, into chapter 22. Uh, into chapter 22. So then Paul goes into the temple and he does, he follows through. Uh, He does, he initiates this vow. Um, But while he's there, the people in the temple, they recognize him um, and they become completely enraged. Okay, it's exactly what the Spirit promised would happen. And in a moment, we're going to talk about Paul's response uh, to that hostility, how he managed that hostility, how he responded not with increasing hostility or wrath uh, back toward those people, uh, but with love and with understanding and with a hope to appeal to their better nature and to, and to what God might want for them. Um, but first, I want to draw your attention to the speech that he gives uh, after he's basically seized by these people and beaten. Um, Paul is held up here as an example, right? This, this is how we can see a whole disciple explaining the gospel, explaining the gospel. Now, our goal here is not going to be to sort of copy and paste. Uh, Paul said this, so just spit that right back out. But I want to give you uh, just some thought-provoking ideas about how Paul a- appeals, how he persuades, how he builds a bridge with his listeners so that what he says is particularly relevant to their uh, needs, their hopes and desires, what they understand about who God is already. Um, and I, want, I also want to just take this out of the abstract for us. Okay, it would, be so, it would be too easy for us to say, oh, those are nice principles. Thank you, Pastor. See you next Sunday. I want you to think, especially with Easter on the horizon, maybe you have some people in mind. I know in our little video, we did a little video announcement this morning, something different. Um, Uh, Crystal said, start thinking about who you could be inviting for Easter. I want you to have that person in mind as as we talk through what it would look like to be a whole disciple explaining the gospel, uh, to not just have sort of a generic idea in mind, but think about that person. Who who comes to your mind immediately? And I I want you to stick with that person in your mind as I speak through these things and I give sort of principles for how you might explain the gospel, uh, hoping to be... uh, sort of relevant to their needs at that moment for Christ, um, have that person in mind. And as I, as I explain each principle, think about how it would apply to that person in mind, with your in mind. So let's begin. Verse 1, chapter 22. Keep in mind, this is after, after Paul has been beaten publicly. Uh, he stands up and he, he, he begins to make his, his defense. He says, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. Let's stop there. Here's a man who's just been beaten within a few inches of his life, uh, stands up, and the first thing he says to the crowd who just beat him, brothers and fathers. Hear the defense. The, uh, it's from the word apologia, where we get our word apologetics. Um, hear, hear my appeal. The man who's just been beaten, now it's time to appeal. And how does he begin? He begins by showing them respect and honor, brothers and fathers. Now, I don't know if you know, all too often Christians have the reputation not for honoring and respecting uh, those we want to share Christ with, uh, for honoring and respecting those who disagree with us. Now, some of that is earned, some of it's not, but we just have to keep it in mind. 
we must explicitly demonstrate to our friends and neighbors that we view them as people worthy of our attention and time, apart from any spiritual changes we hope that they might make. If we do not, we are in danger of effectively unsaying with our actions what we say with our words about how God feels about them. If God loved us while we were still sinners, then we can do the same for those around us. Does that friend you were thinking of, that friend you had in mind, do they know that they're important to you, that you respect them? Do they know that you're not just, they're not just a project, they're a person to you, that you love them irrespective of what spiritual choices they might end up making? If you're not sure, and, and to be honest, this is a step, I think there's, there's no relationship that's in, in, in danger of being over-encouraging. What's a step you could take this week to ensure that they do know that? Let's continue on. Verse 2. When they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. <laughs> I am a Jew, he said, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished." Now, what Paul does in this first paragraph of his speech is to establish his identity and his credentials. Why should we listen to you? He answers that question right away. Uh, in doing so, he builds a bridge between himself and his audience. He says, you're concerned about being zealous for the law? Me too. Uh, you are Jewish people? Me too. He does that also in, the, in his choice to address them in Hebrew, even though many of them would have spoken Greek as well. And uh, those who had just saved him, the Romans who had just saved them would have spoken Greek as well, but in order to build a bridge with them, he addresses them in a language that they understand, that they would appreciate. And you see it, they, they become even more quiet. They see that this is someone worth listening to. Now, what he's saying is, with his argument is important. And I hope, again, this is a huge passage. I, I looked at it, I put it in my word counter and realized it would take me almost 11 minutes to read it all the way through. Uh, so I hope you have time in your community group, uh, listen to the group's podcast. We did a little more extensive sort of study in it on there. Um, so we want to wring all the goodness out of this that we can, but with my short time, here's what we're going to say. What's important uh, is not only his argument, but the way that he goes about spelling out his argument. What he's doing is that by adapting to their particular concerns about his status as a Jew, about his status according to the law, about his care for, for them, about his uh, familiarity with their uh, concerns, is he's demonstrating that he understands them. He's demonstrating that he knows what, what they're concerned about. Does your friend, does your friend that you had in mind, do they know that you understand them? Do they know that you have been so attentive to them in their concerns that you could articulate their concerns maybe even better than they could? Too often, we assume that we know, we know what is keeping our friends from trusting Christ. Um, and so we end up giving an explanation or giving some apologetic moment, whatever it happens to be, addressing a roadblock that isn't actually there. 
Paul was so uh, concerned that he went way out of his way to demonstrate that he understood them. Well, let me take you back a few years ago where I made the same mistake. Um, it's back in 2015, I was doing college ministry and we had this summer training program. Uh, it was a really great thing, but each, each Saturday we would go out and we would uh, do evangelism on the streets in Iowa City. It's a perfect time, you know, we had all kinds of stuff going on. It's summer in Iowa City. People are a little more willing to talk maybe on the street than normally. <clears throat> and it was good for people to just kind of learn principles of evangelism they'd apply for their lives. But uh, one, of the, one of the last weeks of the semester, I remember, it was Saturday morning and happened to be Pride Week in downtown Iowa City. Rainbow flags everywhere, the parade, all that stuff. It was Saturday morning. All the lead up to the big events of that day. And we said, well, should we cancel our evangelism thing or should we go for it? Um, because we were being cowards. And uh, we decided we should probably go for it. We prayed and we said, let's just see what happens. And there were several good conversations. Our goal was just to go out and share this. We had one particular story about that, uh, that Jesus had shared, a parable of Jesus. And so we, we went out two by two um, and shared this story with people that we met. And I know, in hindsight, I realized, I assumed that for every person that we spoke to that day, whatever they looked like, whatever they were wearing, it didn't matter, that the main roadblock between them and trusting Christ was the Bible's view of sexuality. That was just my... Ba- my Fundamental assumption. The reason you can't trust Christ, if, you, you know, if you're hearing that's true, then it must be that. And I remember um, one of the groups coming back and they said, we had the strangest conversation. Um, now, just about everyone that didn't go very well, but they had this great conversation um, with this guy and you know, he, was, he was very stereotypically committed to what that weekend was all about. Um, and so they started sharing the story, and it seemed like he was sort of open. They said, well, what do you think, what, what keeps you from trusting Christ? Have you heard the gospel? It turns out he was very well acquainted and, um, with the gospel of Jesus. And he said, well, actually, um, it has nothing to do with sexuality. It has nothing to do with that. He said, I'm a military man. I grew up and became a soldier, and the idea that God could tell me that I can't be self-sufficient on my own, that I need him to take care of me, need him to save me, that's, I could never do that. That's offensive to me. Huh. Now, if you're anything like me, that was just bizarre. I, I would have immediately thought, okay, I need to explain to you why the Bible's version of sexuality is the right one and the best one and why it's beautiful and good. And I would have been barking up the totally wrong tree because I wasn't really listening. And all I would have demonstrated to him is that I didn't really understand him at all, which is the very th- thing he thought was wrong with Christians, by the way. Now, if we are really listening to the people around us, uh, we'll be able to understand their concerns and address them as they say them, as they bring them out. Does your friend have in mind that you understand them so well um, that, they know, that you know why Jesus is good news for them in particular? Why, why the Bible has good answers to their questions in particular? And this is, by the way, this is a place where we have tremendous opportunity for Christian influence in our society today. Historically, Christianity tends to gain traction not where the culture is booming and doing really well, but where it's suffering, where it's, where it's not meeting society's needs and stuff like that. Um, in, in our day, here's one of those places. Hardly anyone is paying attention, actual real attention, to anyone any of the time. And that's because we are more distracted, we have more opportunities to be distracted with more of our day than maybe any generation that has ever gone before us. Now, I'm thankful te- for technology, I'm thankful for all those things, but here's the deal. 
advertisers are fighting for your neighbor's attention. Fighting, doing, they have neuroscientists figuring out how to keep our attention on our devices, on our screens, watching the big screen while we have the little screen and the medium screen all going at the same time. You've done it. Okay, I've done it. All right. And not because they care about them and want to, well, they do want to understand them. <laughs> not because they love them, but because they want to commodify their data and sell them something. Your neighbors are fighting for each other's attention. We're all fighting for each other's attention, hoping to get the, the emotional jolt that comes with the like or going viral or becoming an influencer or I don't even know. The point is, do you know how rare it is to actually pay attention to someone? Without any motive other than to understand them. Not spending the time what you'll say, thinking of what you'll say next or just genuinely listening, genuinely seeking to understand. It has become countercultural to look people in the eye. And that costs us nothing, by the way. It costs us nothing to give people that kind of attention, that kind of concern and care, to ask good questions, uh, to, to, to go out of your way. The greatest gift that, gift that we can give in a world that's starving uh, for attention is our free and unhurried, loving understanding of them. And so we have an opportunity in that way. Um, <clears throat> So I, I actually, and I want to give you more practical stuff here, but I see my time is running out. So I sat down with uh, Pastor Mark and Casey, one of our great staff people here, to talk about evangelism. Um, and uh, we've recorded a podcast. We're going to put it on the training, training uh, podcast. So that's the orange one. If you get, get signed up for that, you'll hear that. to 20 or 30 minutes, basically on evangelism for normal people. Okay, people who feel a little bit like, I'm not sure what to do. Help me figure out some good next steps. So... Um, there you go, another resource that you can tap into. But here's Paul, a whole disciple, communicating the gospel with respect, uh, with understanding, with courage. So let's follow his God-given example um, to become a church that makes whole disciples by explaining the gospel with that kind of respect, with that kind of specificity, with that kind of persuasion in mind. Now, uh, let's move on. Uh, all the way down to chapter 21, verse 27. So uh, I know I'm kind of doing a sandwich thing where I started at the beginning of the passage, went to the end, and now we're going back to the middle. But what I want you to think about is what led to Paul's gracious, patient, understanding speech <laughs> that he gave in front of this crowd that just tried to basically kill him. Um, and it's this. Look, in verse 27, when the seven days were almost completed, that's the seven days of his vow, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, was with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. Now once the gates were shut, no escape. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Um, and I'll, I'll just keep going. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, 
away with him. How does a whole disciple respond to hostility? Hostility. Well, we already know. He responded to hostility with a gracious, understanding, uh, respectful presentation of the hope of Jesus that was offered to these people who had every interest in killing him. Away with him, by the way, that is uh, to say, kill him. Kill him. I don't know about you, but I don't find it difficult to be patient and kind with people who are patient and kind to me. I don't find it hard to try to understand people who are eager to understand me. I'm guessing the friend that you had in mind is not someone who betrayed you. Maybe it is. God bless you. That's amazing if it is. Our natural tendency is to respond to hostility with even more hostility. And by the way, Paul did not need to give this speech at all. He was was being rescued essentially into safety, or at least what felt like safety at that point. Uh, And if he had clarified what was going on, there's a good chance he would have been released and and he'd maybe move on, I don't know. He he could have just shut up. He did not need to say any of this. He could have left them in their sinful ignorance, but that is not the way of Jesus. Not then, not now. 20 years before this happened, these same events, um, same exact spot, a similar crowd laid hands on a righteous man, not Paul, but Jesus, whose only intention was to love them um, and offer salvation. Jesus is the ultimate example for us of sharing and explaining the gospel. He is not just an idea that we can do our best to uh, give to people. He is the word become flesh. Uh, He came to make sure that the gospel was clear to us, not at the risk of his life, as Paul did, but at the cost of his life. Jesus could have understood you from heaven. He could have just known you. He could have communicated to you somehow totally different. That didn't cost him anything. And yet Jesus was so eager for you to understand who he was, why he could be the answer to your heart's deepest questions, why he, that he put on flesh. Our, our God decided that, the, that explaining the gospel in a way that you could understand you right here, as well as that person that you have in mind, was worth dying for. It was worth dying for. Jesus lived his life, spoke the words he spoke. God gave his word to us in the way that he gave it to appeal to you, to appeal to us, so that the gospel, be, could, gospel could become understandable even if we end up rejecting it. Now, I'll come back to my first question. Has the book of Acts given you a compassionate heart for those people? Has it softened your heart to speak the truth of Jesus courageously? Like I said, here we are, we're at 38 weeks in. Um, At this point, uh, I'll be the first one to say, I know my problem is not a knowledge problem. It's not that I don't know the truth. It's not that I don't know what I ought to do. Uh, It's that I need God to take my hard heart and transplant it for his heart of love and compassion. And he is not only eager to forgive our frequent lack of love, but to fill us with his resurrection power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead that we're going to celebrate here soon, uh, God is interested in filling us with it to overcome our fear, to make us persuasive, interested, understanding people who can respond just as Paul did learning from Jesus in in that very same place, at that very same manner. Even though they said, away with him, kill this man, get rid of him, 
he was eager to respond, understanding them, appealing to them, persuading him, them that Jesus offers them everything that they need. In fact, the closer that you get, get to Jesus, the more strength you will find to live as he lived. That's the, that's the meta message of this passage. Paul shows us what a person transformed by Christ, how they respond. Because we were that crowd calling for blood and he received us with open arms, even though it cost him everything. He will never hold out on you. He will never reject you. He gave everything to ensure that you come to him in bold, risky sacrifice. He will never abandon you. He will never waste your blood. He will never waste what you give for him. He'll make sure it has its effect. 